Welcome to episode 130 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's good? This beer that I'm drinking is good, and it's in an excellent sort of shaped insulated glass that you gave me for Christmas. I mean, for midwinter, no reason uh, <laughs> present. That's exactly the kind of gift it was. It is. Well, I'm a little bit jealous because I'm I'm so tired right now. I'm drinking some coffee, but um, I'm drinking coffee in an exceptional vessel. You know, I was thinking about that. You could drink beer out of those mugs because they're 15 ounce mugs. That's a good so point, it's like actually. Almost yeah, a pint. An, yeah, another just sounded like I just completely lost my ability <laughs> to speak there. Yeah, another reason people should get these mugs. And again, before I just go off on this, we do have something kind of exciting that involves muggery, if you will. Muggery? That's, that's what I'm calling. The gift of giving a mug. I feel like that might be something out of like Harry Potter. Like it does like sound that way, mug, right? Mugglery. Yeah. Yes. So we are doing another contest. Uh, the guy who runs Confessional Wear, uh, which is the uh, company that does all of our merchandising. Um, his name is Raphael, and he has graciously offered up uh, to sort of help promote the show and also to sort of build some awareness about his brand. Uh, he's graciously offered up six items for us to give away. So uh, we have now developed an entire line of Society of Reform podcaster mugs now because people love their 15-ounce big handle mugs. So we've got yeah, our previous do. assortment with the Reform Brotherhood, uh, Reform Standard, and the Public Domain. We've now introduced a Society of Reform Podcasters mug, uh, which is already available on the website. And there's an According to Christ 15-ounce mug. Um, so we're going to give away three, uh, the Reform Brotherhood line of mugs. So uh, enter to win one of those. We're also going to give away one According to Christ mug. And then we're going to give away an According to Christ t-shirt and an According to Christ trucker hat. So you can go to our website, reformbrotherhood.com slash contest. It's the standard kind of like retweet this, go visit this Facebook page here. Give us your social security number and mother's maiden name. Uh, kind of uh, <laughs> podcast contest entries. Um, so seriously, though, if there's somewhere that's asking you to give it the social security number, don't don't do it. Don't do it. That's not it's us. It's not us. It's a fake website. So speaking of phishing scams, Jesse, did you see that email that I sent you this week? <laughs> yes, I did see that email and I was pleasantly surprised to receive it. I know. I have to pull this up here. Uh, let me pull up the email because it's pretty amazing. So it's amazing. been a, a big week for the podcast, it has. would you say? Yeah, we hit 200,000 downloads since switching to this new podcast host, which is exciting. And I have to find the email. I, I don't want to mess up the uh, the phrasing of this very important email. Well, I mean, here's the thing. We've talked about this before. We just always love getting together and talk about theology. And then we thought, let's open this up and bring other voices in. And hopefully maybe our small, tiny little conversations would be edifying. We're definitely not in it for the praise or the glory of which there is next to nothing on both of those fronts. But once in a while, you get an email like the one we received this week. And you just think, man, this is all worth it. Yeah, so I received an email from someone named Brittany. I'm not sure who Brittany is, but it says, Hey, Tony, I hope this email finds you well. 
We are pleased to inform you that your firm, Reformed Brotherhood, has been shortlisted to participate in the Top 50 Healthcare Companies Award to be confirmed yes. at IFAH on, eight, on 18 to 20 June 2019 at Caesars Palace, no apostrophe, <laughs> Las Vegas. IFAH is a healthcare or conference bringing together the best and brightest from the industry under one roof. So, uh, I, I mean, we weren't even trying to be a healthcare firm, but apparently we're just so good at it that we are among the top 50 uh, in the country. So, Jesse, have you booked your flight to Las Vegas yet for 18 to 20 June? Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, just I mean, yesterday. I'm pretty stoked. So, um, I'm glad that our firm has become so prestigious in the healthcare arena. Um, I'm going to have to share this with some of my doctor friends at work because who would have known that our theology podcast was such a phenomenal um, healthcare firm? <laughs> I just, I just love it so much. We should, we really should start reading some of our spam that we get that gets filtered out. But the funny thing is, this didn't get filtered out. This actually came through and didn't get like, didn't get like plugged as a. Uh, healthcare company or as a uh, a spam company, so it's pretty interesting. Well, and that's how I know that it's legit. Yeah, I mean, there's like an address here. Um, it's funny because the address is uh, in Las Vegas, but it's very clear from the style of dates that they're trying to emulate that this is somebody in Europe writing this because they're not writing dates like uh, we do in North America, which is just phenomenal. I wonder what this website goes to. I'm probably putting a virus on my iPad by going to this website. Yeah, I would I would definitely click that yeah. without reservation. One of the things I've been wondering though since you sent that to me was perhaps actually we do deserve this award because when you think about it in terms of a podcast as an organization providing the kind of fully orbed healthcare that's the, the humanity needs, it's definitely this podcast in the sense that, you know, we're concerned with the most important health, which is that spiritual health, that spiritual abundant life. Oh yeah. So for sure. it's possible that this is we they're actually gotten this to the right place finally. Yeah, I mean we really just do so much to advance the healthcare industry on our show. <laughs> I mean, it's really it's 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 close to my heart um and you know, it's really important. We're doing really important work in the healthcare field here. Uh, can I so can I share a quick story then to show that this that is the opposite of that is true at least for me? Yes. So as you know, and some others may as well, my wife just recently had another surgery that she had to have taken care of. And as part of that process, in terms of like the, the aftercare, she had like a, a small, very small, but a small wound that needed to be packed for a little bit just as it heals, as it um, continues to go through the process of re recuperating. And so she, she just came back from the hospital. And right before she did, I arrived after work one evening and the nurse came in and said, um, guess what you're going to learn to do? And I was like, what? And she's like, you're going to learn to help like pack this small wound. I didn't know what that entailed, but I can tell you that what I've since learned is that I should never be a nurse. Yeah. There's no way I could ever handle being a nurse. Um, but the best part of this was she's showing me the process. It's not like particularly gruesome. It's just like, you know, normal nurse like stuff. 
But the best part of this for me was, you know, she said to me, is there any chance that you're going to pass out? And I was like, I don't think so. Like I, she got me, she got me like really nervous at, at the beginning. She's like, I'll show you how to do it. It's really easy, but is there any chance that you're going to pass out? And I was like, I don't think so. So then she started going through the process. She's like, you take off the bandage, here we apply the gauze, all that stuff. And she looks over and she says to me, are you okay? And, I, and I'm thinking like, I'm being like super chill because like she had built this up so much. I'm going to be like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to show like, I can handle this. Like, yeah, I work in finance, but Hey, how hard can this be? <laughs> but she says to me halfway through, are you all right? And I was, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm looking real good right now. Right. <laughs> and she, and I was like, yeah, why? And she's like, cause you were literally dripping sweat on the floor. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> and so I, yeah, I put my hand on my forehead. I was just like drenched with sweat. Like my mustache literally was just like collecting uh, that's sweat. That's funny. So this is definitely not a podcast that is doing a lot to advance healthcare. No, no, it's not. The funny thing is that this conference that they're, they're sending you links to looks like a legitimate conference, actually. So maybe we should sign up and go. <laughs> it seems like a real conference. I mean, it's got like actual people from actual companies that it's got on the panel. So I don't know. Wouldn't that be funny if we showed up and we did like interviews and they're like, why are you here? And I was like, I don't know. We got shortlisted for like one of the top 50 companies. We're probably like oh, the only people who so show great. up. So we might actually win. That would be so great. We should definitely do a live cast from that conference. <laughs> Just like interviewing doctors that have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. I'm pretty sure that since we, re- we received that reward, it requires us by law now to change our intro. So it's going to have to be something like, welcome to episode 130 of the Reform Brotherhood, one of the top 50 shortlisted <laughs> companies for healthcare. Healthcare innovation. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that about like passing out and like the like the way that like bodily functions impact people. So I, you know, I work at the hospital when I was in kidney transplant, I had an opportunity to go into the OR and actually observe a kidney transplant was probably one of the coolest things in my life. But before you go in, you know, they, you have to do like, you have to sign a bunch of paperwork and then you have to like watch like an OSHA video about safety and no joke. One of the slides on the, uh, OR safety and like cleanliness, um, PowerPoints you have to watch says, don't spit into the person's body. <laughs> oh my goodness. And then there's another one that says, if you feel like you're going to faint, faint away from the person's body. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Again, so it literally is like, don't spit on anything. And if you're going right. to fall over, fall over away from the, the person's open body. And just like, of course, any rule or regulation or policy, certainly that was born oh, yeah. from some type of experience where oh, somebody yeah, was sure. just like, I feel like I'm about to faint. Where's a soft place for me to throw my head? <laughs> How about on the person being operated on? Yeah. And that's no good. It's no good. Yeah, I don't actually know what they would do, people. but they would, they would, it would be bad. It would, it would definitely be bad. I also sure. discovered, uh, not from observing it or anything like that, but just from asking the kidney transplant surgeon, I asked them what they would do if they dropped the kidney on the ground during the course of the operation. And his Five second his answer was, we would clean it off and we would still use it. <laughs> well, I mean, kidneys are, I mean, such a precious yeah. organ. Yeah, they're also so super I, resilient, I thought, <laughs> so they probably would be fine. <laughs> I really thought what you were going to say is, the doctor said, well, we pick it up and blow it off and we just use it. <laughs> Actually, it prob- you would probably get more germs on it from blowing it off than you would from picking it from it hitting the floor like this floor in an or is not sterile by any means but it's probably cleaner than your breath is 
You're talking about me personally? Well, yeah, but like everybody. <laughs> it just sounded very, all of a sudden that got real and kind of accusatory. <laughs> you know what's cleaner than your breath? Most floors in a hospital. <laughs> well, that's not true. Most OR floors in a hospital, probably. <laughs> I would hope so. Uh, well, I'm really grateful to receive this award, as I know you are. So yes. hopefully we can get a lot of people together to descend on Caesar's Palace. Not the one that Caesar owns, the palaces of Caesar's, apparently. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because no there's no apostrophe. There's no possessive mark. So it's it's Caesar's. It's like a Caesar dressing. It's the descript- yes, description. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we'll see everybody there yeah. live cast. I would like to thank the little people. I don't know who those are. But the little people, they and the Academy, too, they, they helped me win this award, helped us win this award. The Academy of Healthcare Professionals. Yes, the Healthcare Theology Podcasters uh, Guild. That's what we're going to start now. That's our next podcasting society. The shortlisted Top 150, 1 to 50 Healthcare Podcasters Theology Award. I love it. I mean, since we've gotten this one, I can't wait to see what kind of awards we receive next, because if we've gotten one for healthcare, I really feel like the world is now our oyster. The funny thing is I actually registered us to be uh, in the running for the podcast, like the actual annual podcast awards. Um, And then we forgot to announce it, which meant none of our listeners went to vote. And there was like four theology podcasts in the running. So there was a real chance we could have won that. And we just forgot to tell anybody about it. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'd like to think that we won this because somebody voted for us. Yes. <laughs> in terms of healthcare innovation. Yeah, I hope so. So before we uh, continue on 45 more minutes of this, let's get into our actual topic. Because not that this yeah, isn't an it. actual topic, but what's our actual theology topic for the night? <laughs> so sometimes we receive a voicemail and it's the kind of question that we feel like we can give a little attention to on the question cast and we can with brevity, speak an opinion or a word about something. Sometimes we receive a voicemail and it needs to be talked about in terms of a whole conversation. It can take a a long period of time. And yet there's other times where we receive a voicemail and it really deserves or warrants multiple conversations. And this is one of those times. So let's play this voicemail that we received and this will set the kind of the course for what we're about to talk about. Jesse, Tony, it's Tim Shore here. Uh, Love the show. Appreciate the work you guys are doing. Um, thought I'd toss a question out there. Uh, I've been re- reading recently um, for my uh, philosophy and Western thought course, um, and one thing that recently came up was Anselm's um, satisfaction theory of the atonement and how it differs uh, from penal substitutionary atonement. And if I remember, you guys did some work on this a couple years ago, just on the different atonement series, but I would love to hear a little bit of an update from you guys on uh, satisfaction theory versus penal substitutionary atonement, um, the pros and cons of both, and specifically how substitution differs in Anselm's theory uh, versus the typical reform view of penal substitutionary atonement. Um, so I have some thoughts on this, but would love to hear you guys riff on it for a while. Appreciate the podcast and everything you guys are doing. Thanks and talk to you soon. So I appreciate the question from Tim, because this is something that you and I've been talking about for a little while, kind of getting back into. And he specifically mentions a couple of theories of the atonement, especially the satisfaction theory and penal substitutionary atonement. But what I love about Tim's question is it really gives us the excuse 
to nerd out a little bit and spend some focus time on developing a whole series of conversations about theories of the atonement, yeah. which I think is something that is a little bit undervalued in Christian circles, but it gives us just an excuse to really have some dialogue about how through time, different people, theologians, churches have interpreted what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And the reason why we're going to do a whole series of episodes on this is because the central question that, of course, the Bible addresses is how can sinful man ever be accepted by a holy God? And there's this proper focus on sin as this barrier separating man from God and a barrier that man was able to erect, but is entirely unable to demolish. But the truth on which the Bible insists is that God has dealt with this problem. And so what we mean by that is that that God has made an atonement on, on man's behalf. And so in the Old Testament, we have sacrifice having the significant place not because it was efficacious, but because God had given it as the way, as he did in Leviticus. And then when we get to the New Testament, we have kind of this, where we've seen all the shadowing. We have the cross plainly occupying the central place as God's way of bringing salvation to his people. But the interesting thing is, if you look at the Bible and really study it, it doesn't necessarily set out an explicit theory of atonement. Yeah. And what I mean by that is there, there are all these references to the effectiveness of Christ's atoning work. And we're not lacking for information about all these kind of many sidedness of what it means when Christ has died on the cross for us. So like, for example, Paul gives a good deal of emphasis to the atonement as a process of justification. And he uses concepts like redemption and propitiation and reconciliation. Sometimes we read in the Bible, the cross is a victory or as an example. In other places, it's kind of held up as the new covenant or just simply the sacrifice. And there are many ways of viewing it, but we're, we are left in no doubt about its efficacy and its complexity. And even some of those words I just said there, they get thrown around a lot in kind of Christian vernacular without some proper understanding of what we even mean. So no matter how we view the, the human spiritual problem, the cross meets the need, but the New Testament does not explicitly enumerate how it does that. And so through the centuries, there have been all these continuing efforts to work out what it means that Christ died on the cross. Because it's a simple question, something that could satisfy the mind of a child, and yet we could plumb the depths of for the rest of our lives. Yeah. And so the theories of atonement, these ideas of what Christ did, how he accomplished it, what it meant for us, they're legion as men in different countries and different ages have really tried to bring together the varied strands of scriptural teaching and to work them into a theory that will help others to understand how God has worked to bring us salvation. And the way has been open for this kind of venture because the church has never really laid down an official orthodox view. So like in the early centuries, there were all these kind of great controversies about the person of Christ, about the nature of Trinity, stuff we've talked about. We had the whole heresy cast. We went through many of those. And so those heresies appeared. They were thoroughly discussed and they were disowned. And in the end, the church accepted the the formula of Chalcedon as kind of the standard expression of orthodox faith. But... There was no really equivalent with the atonement. So people simply held to the satisfying truth that Christ saved them by way of the cross. It did not really argue about how this salvation was affected. So what's interesting is through time, I'd say there's about maybe, I mean, you could say there's almost close to a dozen different theories of atonement answering this question, what did Christ accomplish on the cross? And so the question that Tim poses is a really great one because it gets us thinking about and appreciating the death of Christ in all of its many facets and ideals. So what we're going to embark on is a multi-episode conversation focusing each episode on a particular theory of the atonement. And what we'll see is that these theories of the atonement tend to either, sometimes they focus on the different roles that Christ had, either as prophet, priest, or king. And sometimes they're focused in such a way where they are 
centered on the essence of atonement as the effect of the, of the cross on the believer. Sometimes they tend to focus on the fact that the atonement is a victory of some sort. Some emphasize the Godward aspect of atonement. But the idea is to kind of deconstruct each of them so that we can appreciate what they mean. And sometimes it's just to introduce that these ideas are out there. And then to see, is there anything in it as we ana- analyze it that is redeeming, that comports with scripture, and where are the errors in each one? And then my hope is that as we discuss through this stuff, not only will we edify each other, but as people become more aware and familiar with these particular theories, that they'll come to see that there are ones that most directly comport with the scripture, one or two in particular, in my opinion. And then even beyond that, when they hear teaching, preaching, or they're reading, they'll be able to get a sense for where is the author or the pastor coming from helping to identify how they're understanding the atonement, which of course understands how we see the gospel. So that was a really long introduction, but how do you feel about all that? I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to spend some time on this topic because, you know, we, on this show, we've spent a lot of time talking about Christology, um, but we've focused almost all of our Christological reflection on the person of Christ. So the metaphysical the, the way that the incarnation functions, um, Christ, how Christ's divine and human natures interact with each other, miracles, and how that all plays out. But one of the things we haven't focused on as much is really the work of Christ. And so atonement right. theology, even though instinctively we, we kind of tend to put it into soteriology, we put it as an element of soteriology, properly speaking, atonement theology and all of these theories about the atonement really fit under the the heading of Christology. And it's funny because, you know, I did a little bit of a little bit of reading in preparation for this um, just this morning. And so I was pulling out all my systematic books. And so I'm going through and I'm pulling out all of the volumes on soteriology. And then I'm looking, I'm going, why can't I find anything about the atonement? And then I remembered, oh, yeah, I have to look in Christology, not in um, soteriology. And obviously, there's, there's overlap, and there's things that kind of flow. But what what Christ did and and how he saves us is a separate um, part of the discipline of theology than the actual application of the, of salvation to us. So so it's important for us to sort of delineate that. And I'm really excited to do this because this is this is something that I have not done as much in focus study as I would like to. Um, so it gives me a good reason to sort of set aside some of the other stuff I'm working on for a little while and kind of focus on this theology and sort of shore it up. But you're absolutely right. I was reading at Bovink today and he starts off his discussion of the atonement by saying, unlike the Trinity or Christology or even things like justification and sanctification, there's never been a full blown controversy in the church surrounding the atonement. And so for almost all of the church's history, and you could even argue for all of the church's history, atonement theology has been just sort of there. And there's been all of these, I don't want to say competing strands of thought, because there's not any one atonement theology that really, really conflicts with any other atonement theory. But there's been all of these parallel lines of thinking that have kind of developed alongside each other. And one of the things that I'm excited to explore is that contrary to some of the um, Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic narratives on atonement, um, all of the major atonement theories find um, antecedents in the early church. So although right. it wasn't super well developed, we see all throughout the Old Te- or the Old Testament, all throughout the 
the early church, we see different um, sort of nascent forms of these different theories crop up. And what that tells me is that this is information, as you've said, that's not explicitly laid out in the scriptures. It is a kind of a synthesized doctrine that we have to take various parts of um, scripture and synthetically weave them together to form a systematic position. Um, and this, the church did that with Christology. It did it with Trinitarian theology, but it never really did it with atonement theology, which is why you see right. these different strands of thought kind of persisting throughout the church. So I'm really stoked to get started on this. Yeah, so let's get into it. So the, the first one that I want to throw out for us to chat about and riff on a little bit was what's called the ransom theory of atonement. Yeah. And so let me throw out like a general definition as I think it's kind of classically defined. But in the ransom theory of atonement, and this is something that, again, like you said, going back to the early church, there, there seems to be, as much as I can ascertain, like little attention given to the way that the atonement worked. But usually when the question was faced, the answer often came in terms of the New Testament references to redemption. And so that's where this ransom theory comes from. And basically the early fathers reasoned that because of sin, people rightly belong to Satan. So God offered his son as a ransom, basically a bargain that Satan eagerly accepted. But when Satan got Christ down into hell, so to speak, he found that he could not hold him. So on the third day, Christ rose triumphant and left Satan without either his original prisoners or the ransom he had accepted in their stead. So this was very popular among the early fathers, so much so that they often use this illustration of, of fishing to explain the theory. So essentially the flesh of Jesus was the bait and the deity was the fish hook. So Satan swallowed the hook along with the bait and was transfixed. And this, because of that, that this view has variously been called like the devil ransom theory or the classical theory or the fish hook theory of atonement. So that, that's kind of like the, is that kind of your understanding of this in a nutshell? Yeah. And, and you know, it's always been a little strange to me because the other, the other sort of ransom theory kind of has these two, these two prongs to it, right? There's this sort of like tricking the devil uh, into taking the bait prong, but then there's, right. there's, and, and I think this is where we'll find some valid, uh, some valid theology is, um, there's this other prong where it's that Satan is kind of like the cosmic jailkeeper. And so the, the, the payment that's made on the cross when Christ dies is paid to Satan as sort of like the bail bondsman or like the, the, right. like the person at the court who takes your check for the speeding ticket. Like you're not really paying that person. That person is just there as an agent of the state to collect the payment. And then, then they discharge your punishment because it's been satisfied or it's been paid for. And so, so the devil fills that function in a lot of early Christian theology of being the one who kind of accepts the payment on behalf of, on behalf of God, because he's the one that sort of executes the punishment um, that man has uh, earned as a result of their sin. So I don't, I don't know exactly why those two thoughts um, coincide so much, like why they weave together the way they do, um, but they do, they definitely do. And so it's, it's interesting in the early church to sort of see how they talk about this and how they reflect on it. And particularly in the East, this was a really prominent thing. I do take a little bit of exception with calling it the classical view though. And that's always frustrating me because um, it, it's not really the classical view. Usually when you talk about a classical view, you talk about like the original or the most, like the most dominant the early, early view. 
but right. in reality, this this view wasn't any more prominent um, across the entirety of the church than um, any other you know atonement theology was. Um, it's prominent in a few big names, but that it really it's it's like um, Gregory of Nyssa and Origen. We see it real strongly in right. kind of that Alexandrian um, Antiochian. Both of those schools kind of held this theory. Um, but you see in other places in the church, particularly in the West, this theory just never really took hold as much as it did in the East. Right. And and that's what's interesting about this is I, I think it's got to be called classical because of like the big names that came yeah. behind it or those that articulated it best, origin being one of the primary ones. I mean, again, we're talking about what what each of these theories essentially says is like the the primary purpose or the particular aim of Christ's death. So we're going to talk around like a lot of different points. And those, I think we're going to find, again, some like there's some redeeming qualities in some of these theories. But basically the ransom theory is saying like the focus is primarily the aim of Christ's death was the to be able to defeat Satan and the powers of evil. And so Origen, like you said, was one of the, the biggest proponents. And he's somewhat enigmatic sometimes in his comments on Christ's death. But just by way of examples, so people can hear, he does seem to, em- to kind of emphasize his death as a ransom to Satan. So if I can quote him directly, he says, quote, If then we were bought with a price, as also Paul asserts, we were doubtless bought from one whose servants we were, who also named what price he would for releasing those whom he held from his power. Now it was the devil that held us, to whose side we had been drawn away by our sins. He asked, therefore, as our price, the blood of Christ, end quote. So you can hear there, even like beyond, because there's there's a kind of a, what I would say is a derivative theory from this one, which we'll get to in a little bit. But what you hear Origen here saying is this is really like a direct ransom paid, not even like a representative of the state, as you were just saying, but that it was, in fact, within Satan's power, so to speak, to request some kind of price to release yeah. God's people. Yeah. Yeah. And like this, this works its way into Christian theology throughout the ages. So something is straightforward or something that that most of us are probably familiar with is um, sort of C.S. Lewis's portrayal of the atonement of Christ in Narnia, right? Exactly. So um, is it, I, it's been so long since I've read Narnia. Is it Edwin? No. Yes. Edwin. Wait. Yeah. Yeah. Edwin. Yeah. Edwin. So Edwin, Edwin betrays um, his people. He betrays his siblings. He betrays um, Aslan, even though he didn't know Aslan yet, he betrays um, justice in a lot of ways. And so as a, as a traitor, his blood belongs to the white queen, to the white witch. And so, um, so there's this scene where the White Witch and Aslan go into um, into the tent to sort of negotiate for Edwin's release. And when he comes out, um, you know, they come out, and nobody really knows what the agreement is. But at the end of the day, whatever Aslan has has promised her has redeemed Edwin back from her. And so we find out then what happens is that. Uh, Aslan himself goes and he he sacrifices himself so that uh, Edwin can go free. And so we sometimes look at that and we think, oh, yeah, well, that's penal substitution because, you know, Edwin should have been killed on the stone table. But that's not actually what's happening in the story. Right. So in the story, Edwin is actually a slave to the White Queen. He, he's under right. her dominion. He's she's not going to kill him, at least probably not. She's going to use him as a servant. Right. So so the payment that Aslan makes with his own life is not he's not sacrificing himself. He's not becoming her slave. He's paying her 
by sacrificing himself. He's giving her what she wants in order to have her give him what he wants, which is Edwin's freedom. And so that's actually a sort of a more pure understanding of the ransom theory than sometimes we think of where, where you know, we do have sort of like a payment to the devil as a representative of the state or something like that. Um, although that's that's present in the early church, the, the idea that Satan himself has dominion over the world and that what Christ is doing is he's paying a ransom to release the world from his dominion, um, that really is sort of the crux of the argument that's being made. And there's there's biblical reasons for that, right? It's not as though this came out of thin air. There's language right. in the scripture going all the way back to Genesis 3 um, that really kind of like pulls this forward is that even even the idea that the serpent's head will be crushed by the sea bearer is giving the impression that the, the serpent has dominion over the world. Right. So Colossians, we see um, Paul says that he's delivered us out of the kingdom of the you know, prince and power of the air, which most understand to be a reference to Satan and his demons and, to, and redeemed us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's this clear understanding that for whatever reason and whatever the method. Satan has a dominion over the earth, over fallen humanity, and as a result of over being over fallen humanity, he has a, a dominion over the world and the earth itself. And so Jesus breaks that power partially, and I think this is where we're going to go, partially by sort of tricking the devil. Now, now there's all sorts of right. ways that that gets explained, but kind of tricking the devil into basically taking a poison hook, and then that that undoes the power of the devil. As they, and then that's how he's uh, how the people are ransomed out of the power of the devil is that the the devil's power is actually sort of undone by that. Right, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. That's an excellent example. I love that. I wasn't thinking in those terms, but I think that's spot on because the ransom theory is is really based on this principle of the rights of war. You know, like right. in which the conquered becomes a slave of the victor. So we have, at least in this theory we became a slave to Satan through the fall and we need somebody to come who is more powerful to basically buy us back. So the Ranthabury contends that Christ did pay a direct ransom to Satan and that he was deceived. And so what gets really interesting though, is when we take about, we talk about them, well then how is Satan deceived? And do we have a problem with using language that Christ who is all righteous somehow was able to deceive Satan? Do we, is there an issue with that or does he deserve to be deceived because he is the deceiver? So it, th I think that's what makes this a little bit tricky. It gives us into kind of some more technicality because, you know, was Satan deceived because he was just duped into thinking that Christ was but a higher form of an angel? You know, again, this goes back to that metaphor of the fish. Um, this bait of Satan just somehow being deceived by the humanity of Christ and not understanding or appreciating the the deity of Christ. And then really, in its truest form, the ransom theory is a little bit almost purposefully and if I can use this word, like flamboyantly grotesque in the sense that yeah. it's talking about like a literal paying over of Christ's blood for his people. And even Augustine like spoke of the cross as a mousetrap and Christ's blood as the bait. There's all this really interesting language. And so what I found fascinating is basically this, this dude who has a sweet name. I don't know how you pronounce the last name, but I think it's Gustav Allen. You know who I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So is that how you pronounce his last yep. name? Okay, I just he's super sweet and he's Swedish, so I have no idea. So he basically, and the thing this was like late 1800s, as far as I remember. So he kind of took the ransom theory and said, well, "I want to kind of take the edge off what we're talking about here," because there was a part with which he disagreed, and so he basically coined what's called the Christus Victor 
theory of uh, atonement, which is basically kind of a derivative of the ransom theory. Christus victor just simply meaning Christ the victor. And so the modification emerged because some were rejecting this idea of God deceiving Satan and saying, well, that's unjust. And so they wanted to retain the idea of the ransom, but assert that it was like perfectly righteous. And so in that view, we have Satan is basically just a fool who overextended himself by demanding the person of Christ as a ransom, or which is a, someone who he had no power over. Uh, and so what's interesting is Alan principally understands the atonement by appealing to 1 John 3, 8. So let, so let me read that, because that's, like you said, there's so much great scripture from which this theory is drawing. So it's not as if, like you said, they're just pulling this out. We're not talking about heresy in the kind of strict sense where here's an idea that just seems so far away from scripture. Here's, these are ideas that are very close to scripture and are using some of the same language. So let me just read 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so Allen explains this in his commentary. He says, quote, Its central theme is the idea of the atonement as a divine conflict and victory. Christ, Christus Victor, fights against and triumphs over the evil powers of the world, the tyrants under which mankind is in bondage and suffering, and in him God reconciles the world, world, to, world to himself, end quote. So what's interesting here is, in effect, I see this as Allen's kind of re-resurrecting re or just resurrecting this patristic theory of atonement, the old school version of the ransom theory, but he modifies it by kind of eliminating some of that crude imagery of Christ's blood as a ransom to Satan, and he, he's focusing on the victorious conflict of Christ against the powers of evil. So I think that's why often you see these two in tandem. You'll see the ransom theory or Christus Victor. Right. They they often merge together, but they're not exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. And just, just because I want to make sure we sort of lay the foundation here before we rip apart this theory, because I have a feeling when the way we get to it, when it all comes down, this theory, at least by itself, doesn't, uh, it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. But right. that said, even within our own confessional traditions, there is a really strong um, usage of this kind of language because the, what the yes. ransom theory has going for it is that it really clues into a reality that we really are under the power of Satan prior to our conversion, prior to being saved by, by Christ. And as I said, like that's straight up scriptural language. We were a part of the kingdom of darkness under the prince and power of the air, and we were redeemed out of that kingdom and transferred into the kingdom of the sun. So there's, there's a real, there's a reality to that, that the ransom theory, theory clears in on, but just to sort of ground some of the thought in our confessions, um, reading from the, uh, Westminster larger catechism question 27, it says, what misery did the fall bring upon mankind? And the answer is the fall brought upon mankind, the loss of communion with God, his displeasure and curse. So as we are by nature, children of wrath, bond slaves to Satan and justly liable to all punishments in this world and that which is to come. So what the, what the divines here are saying is that part of what happened in the fall is that we became saved Satan's servants, Satan's slaves, not just, um, and they're doing this on purpose, right? They're using the same kind of language that the scripture uses of Christians in relation to their relationship with God as bond slaves of Christ. They're using that same language to describe what our relation to Satan was prior to being saved. And then just right. reading from um, reading from the Scots Confession, chapter four, which is the revelation of the pro uh, promise. Um, it says here, 
Uh, for we, uh, for this, we constantly believe that God, after the fearful and hor- horrible defection of man from his obedience, did seek Adam again and call upon him, rebuke his sin, convict him of the same, and in the end made unto him a most joyful promise, to wit, that the seed of the woman should break down the serpent's head, that is, he should destroy the works of the devil. So even even in the Scots Confession, which is pre- precedes the Westminster uh, Confession and the, the Catechisms, even in that um, tradition, we see that the promise given to Adam is not some abstract theory of the atonement, but that the son right. will concretely defeat the devil. You know, it's it's not just figurative language to say that the, the, the son will crush the serpent's head, right? And then that victory over the devil, it's not... As Reformed Christians, we have this tendency to overcorrect against ransom theory, and what we end up doing is we we have this this conquest theme that the scripture clearly has either conquest or ransom this this war imagery and we just sort of ignore it and we kind of write it off as like well that's just figurative language but the scripture right. really does uh image Christ's victory over the devil as a real physical and spiritual conquest it's a a victory in war over the devil and that's not just figurative language. There's a real war going on. Um, and that's, you know, that ties into, again, this ties into Christology, that the struggle that Christ underwent as the second Adam was a genuine struggle, right? It's not as though he went into the devil and it was into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And it was just a play act, right? He was really genuinely tempted. Satan really right. genuinely attacked him. Now we know, and we've talked about this that Satan could not overcome the indefeatable will of Christ, but it was still a genuine battle that had to be won by the son. So we have to be careful as we critique the ransom theory or the Christus Victor theory, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, because although there's a lot to criticize about these two theories and by themselves, they don't stand up to the scrutiny. There's a real genuine kernel of truth that I think reformed Christians particular I think we overlook and it's to our detriment as we try to explain the atonement, try to explain what Christ did to other Christians or to unbelievers. You know, every we we talk about presuppositional apologetics in this on this podcast. And we although do. presuppositional apologetics doesn't tend to talk about Satan, there's a reality that everybody understands deep down in their being that there is a, there is a pervasive evil out there that oppresses people. And even when you like when you Al Mohler talks about this a lot, when some school shooting or a bombing overseas or something really, really bad happens, he talks about how everyone recognizes that evil is real, that there's a real evil out there and that this evil causes bad things to happen. So we can use the Christus Victor theory and the ransom theory in apologetics to talk about the fact that that evil thing that's out there, that everybody knows is out there, that we can feel and that we're afraid of, that the Bible has an answer for that. That although you, non-Christian, are bond slaves to that evil force out there and under its oppression, that if you will believe and trust in Christ, that he will redeem you out of that kingdom of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we have to not disregard ransom theory just because it smells a little bit like Roman Catholicism or because it smells a little bit like originism or Eastern Orthodoxy. We have to be careful not to discard the biblical elements just because it's easier for us to argue for penal substitution if we don't also have to fit in ransom theory on top of it or underneath it or alongside it. 
So I like that. I think we should like, med- um, what was I going to say? I was going to say meditate, but what I really wanted to say was marinate yeah. in that first second. That's the because, same thing, right? Yeah, I guess, actually, I guess so. <laughs> because I, I like what you said, because there is a tendency to overcorrect. There is a tendency to come too hard against. There is a tendency among reformed people to hyper-spiritualize something or make it all about analogy. And there, there's like a very strong reality here. And there's an important element of biblical truth that I think only comes from the ransom theory because it's trying to place particular emphasis on the victory of Christ. Because in his death and resurrection, Jesus did defeat and overthrow the dominion of Satan and sever his grip on the souls of men. That is something that we probably cannot underestimate or understate. Yeah, And so... And, and this is particularly relevant to me because the Colossians passage, I think which you were referring to earlier in chapter two, is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. And I think the reason why is because it, the language appeals to me as a person who has worked, I said this before, like in banking for my entire career. Because I think we sometimes, getting back to your point about thinking about these, team, these things, this battle, this cosmic battle, almost in a very physical sense that the chains that we had that when we were under the enslavement of Satan, were in fact real. Not just like these kind of strange, ephemeral, metaphysical concept, but this was a real bondage. And so you get all this wonderful language from Paul to that effect. And he's using things that are very real that have like a physical demand in our lives that shape how we live and how we use our resources. And he's using them in a figurative way. But the only reason he can use them figuratively is because people understand that to be literal. So let me give you, with all that set up, like the verse in Colossians I was thinking of. So chapter 2, 13 and 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, I mean, how great is that passage? Like here you get all this stuff. I mean, this is where you see the Christus Victor coming right out of this passage. But what I love is here's Paul saying, you want to know what this was like. Let's talk about being mortgaged. Let's talk about having debt against you and the legal demands of that debt, how it shapes literally how you live because you owe something to somebody else and you can't get out from underneath it. And so uh, this is where I'm totally with you in that if we thought about our sin more like the balance that we cannot repay, the balance that extracts some kind of monthly payment, the balance that has a claim on our resources and our identity prior to Christ, just like a loan has a claim on your income for some determined period of time. That is exactly like what it means to be under bondage to Satan. Yeah. And we need somebody who could come in and not, and not just say, well, would you, you know, would you be willing to give me Jesse? But there had to be a price paid. There, that debt had to be satisfied. Yeah. Somebody had to come in and write the check. And the problem was the balance was so great that nobody had the resources to do it except for Jesus Christ himself. So there is a real physical component to this battle. And I often, I think, at least fail to appreciate that because I just tend to over-spiritualize this stuff, especially on the other side of the cross. Yeah. And, you know, we often look at the Old Testament um, and the rituals of the Levitical Code and we talk about how the, the ceremonial law particularly points forward to um, the incarnation of Christ and the work that he would accomplish for us, right? That's, that's, the, um, that's the way that the Reformed understand the purpose of the Old Testament law, at least one of the purposes of the Old Testament law. And we're very quick to look at the Passover lamb and sort of point to that as, um, 
as covering over our sins. And we tie that to penal substitution about how that lamb suffered death so that um, so that the people, the children of Israel didn't have to. But one of the things that I think is a huge area for Reformed Christians to really look at more is the different festivals and particularly pertinent to our conversation is the year of Jubilee. Right. So in the year of Jubilee, all of the slaves are set free. Right. right. All of the slaves right. are are redeemed out of their slavery. All of those who are in bond servanthood um, are redeemed out of slavery. All of those who have been taken away from their land because they couldn't afford to maintain it or because they were captured, you know, or because they had to sell themselves to pay for debts. All of those people who are taken away from their land out of their kingdom, they're they're reconciled to their own property and to their own heritage, to their inheritance they're released from their slavery and they're ransomed in a sense by God's decree that the slaves should go free. And so that if we lose the ransom theory of the atonement, then that that releasing of the slaves, right? One of when Christ was asked what his ministry was, he points to Isaiah and he says, "I'm setting the captives free." So we we can't look at the ministry of Christ, the work of Christ and lose this ransom Christus Victor line because we lose huge swaths of what Christ himself said about his ministry. And we lose huge portions of how the old Testament pointed forward to what Christ would accomplish for us. So yes, I am, I am above the moon thankful that Christ paid the penalty for my debt, right? Reformed Christians, we love penal substitution atonement. Um, We would go to the mat for it. I think it's at the core of the gospel, but I'm also thankful that God ransomed me out of the kingdom of darkness. And, you know, Amen. even something like we talk about, like the, the kinsman redeemer. Well, what do we think right. that is, right? The kinsman redeemer came and ransomed out of, out of um, bondage, the people that were his own. He came and he, he paid a price to someone else in order to free that person and redeem them from that from that servitude or to release them from their slavery or to recover the land when it was in the possession of someone who didn't own it, properly speaking. So this, this ransom theory really is central to understanding how the Bible articulates what Christ accomplished on the cross. As long as we don't go so far to a certain a certain point where we start to talk about this, like this is all there is because just like, just like we do that against the ransom theory, sometimes people do that where ransom theory becomes all that is right. I think of like Greg Boyd, who has gone so far into craziness, but particularly he started off by saying like penal substitution is this grotesque, unbiblical thing. And Christus Victor, really that's where it's at. Um, ironically, he's a pacifist. And so that's why he wanted to avoid penal substitution theory. But Christus Victor theory is actually all about war, but that's a whole different side effect. Well, that's a good point though. I think what would be helpful as we round out this conversation is let's spend just a couple minutes talking about then how we might critique this, because like you said, taking this as the only theory and kind of setting all of our theological cards, so to speak on the table of Christus Victor ransom theory is problematic. Yeah. And at least for me, I think one of the biggest weaknesses of this particular theory in isolation is that the Christus Victor model or ransom theory is prone, I would say, to like inevitable dualism. Yes. So there's this sense, I think, in which some would say like in the scriptures, there is a shadow dualism in the sense that there's opposition between God and that which in his own created world resists his will. So between the divine love and the rebellion of created wills against him. Right. 
But the thing is, in the scriptures, we don't see an absolute dualism because the scriptural view of evil has no eternal existence. So though Christ did give his life as a ransom for many, and though his death did actually disarm the powers of darkness, we already talked about that, and it, this rendered the power, powerless, the devil who had the power over death, this view of atonement tends to afford more power to Satan than he actually has. Right. Because Satan has never been in any position to make demands of God. Instead, Scripture makes it clear that Jesus paid the price on behalf of sinners to ransom them from the just punishment of God's holy wrath. And I think that's why you find, like in Romans 5, Paul saying something like, you know, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Right. So in the deepest sense, Jesus saved us from God, not merely the power of sin and Satan. So I, I would say that's one of the, the biggest critiques I have. What, what are some that you would have? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the big one, is that um, although it is the case that our sin has delivered us into the kingdom of darkness, um, we have to remember that our ultimate and probably the most significant problem that we have is that we have committed treason against the cosmic king of the universe. And so right. ransom theory, um, ransom theory paints a picture where really our only enemy is the devil and that that God is entirely benevolent towards all people. Um, and that, and th again, this comes out of origin, right? Who, who I think arguably we can say it's probably not the fountainhead, but it's probably the most significant fountainhead of this, of this theology is that our, our real problem is with the devil and that God is entirely benevolent towards us. And so his only act towards creation is that of re reconciliation and redemption. Um, but that just doesn't comport with the scriptural data, right? Jesus saves us from the wrath of the father not just from the kingdom of the devil. Um, he saves us from both of those things, right? And ultimately delivering us over to the kingdom of the devil was a judicial act on God's behalf. But right. Michael Horton is quick to point out in lots of places every time he talks about this is that it doesn't really do much good to defeat the devil if we still have to deal with an angry God who is going to punish us eternally for, for our sins. Exactly. And so the, the, the downfall of the Christus Victor model is that it, it, it fails to take into account the biblical data that uh, clearly portrays that even if even if we want to say it's not the biggest problem, which I think it does, but lots of people would disagree. The fact is that our sin against God and the fact that we are we are also his enemies. And it's not just because we're in the kingdom of darkness that we're his enemies, but we, apart from that association with Satan, are also his enemies. It has to take into account that data. And I just don't think the ransom theory or the Christus Victor theory really does that. And the Christus Victor theory in particular paints it as though there's a war between uh, God and Satan and that we're just kind of casualties, right? That's kind of the Greg Boyd right. version of the Christus Victor theory is we're those who those who fall and ultimately are condemned are are casualties of war. Um, but in reality, it's not it's not just that we're casualties of war, but those of us who are apart from Christ are the seed of the serpent, right? We're, we're not just we're not just under the oppression of the seed of the serpent, but we're servants of the seed of the serpent. And so we uh, we become the seed of the serpent. And apart from being transferred into the son's kingdom, we will be crushed by God along with the serpent. So the Christus Victor model doesn't take into account that we are also God's enemies, not just um, kind of subject to his enemy. 
And I think those are the two main things that I would kind of point out. Now, there are some people that would take some major exception to this idea that God sort of deceives the devil, but I actually don't, right. that actually doesn't bother me that much um, because there are all sorts of places in the scripture that we look at. And yes, they're tricky passages. They're hard to sort of understand what's going on, but there are a fair number of places in the scripture where it appears as though God for his sovereign purposes deceives people. Right. He sends a lying spirit into the mouths of the prophet um, to, right. you know, he entices David to um, to take a census. And yes, we see that a lot of that is through the instrumentality of Satan or through the instrumentality of another spirit. But at the end of the day, God is still the one who is um, intending someone to believe something false. Um, and then the other side of it is that in war, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a soldier there are certain kinds of deceptive things that happen as, as a soldier, right? I might sneak into someone's base. I mean, you're, you can tell I'm getting all of my military knowledge from video games, <laughs> but I might sneak into someone's base and I might, I might steal a uniform and wear that uniform so that I can go through undetected. Well, if I'm really, right. really, really technical by wearing that uniform, I'm presenting myself as though I'm a member of that military and that's a lie. So we wouldn't look at that and say that it's sinful to do so in a state of war, or, or so, I mean, some people might say that, but most people would not say that that's a lie, that that's a sinful lie. It's deceptive. It's not being truthful, but it's not necessarily a sinful lie. And so if we're portraying ransom theory in the context of this concept of like victory and war, using deceptive tactics, right? Um, military forces might move a certain direction in order to make their enemies think they're going, they're going to go take this route and then they change course and they take another route. God commands the Israelites to do that to AI, right? They do that at right. the, the victory of AI. They have this, this ambush deception set up um, in the context of war, that kind of deceptive maneuver where you, you give the enemy something that they think it wants, but in reality, it's actually detrimental to them. Right. You send them, you let them capture a weapon, but you've triggered it to explode something like that. Um, we look at that. We understand that that's that's not war is war is bad. But some of right. the things you do in war would not necessarily be acceptable to do in other contexts. But because it's the context of war, certain things become acceptable or unsinful to do that otherwise would be. So I think that I think that overall, it's not necessary to present this picture of God deceiving Satan. Um, I think the Christus Victor model, which portrays this more as a victory in a battle, I think that that is probably more um, more substantial. So it's not necessary. But and we don't really have a lot of clear scriptural references to Satan being deceived in the atonement. Right. So I know like sometimes, particularly a Roman Catholic thought, there's this idea that Satan thought he was winning a great victory on the cross. And sometimes we talk like that. I mean, you'll find that even reform thinkers that we talk about, you know, we're coming up into into Good Friday. We'll talk about how at, at the darkest moment when Satan thought that he was winning. Um, but there's really right. no biblical reference to that concept that I'm aware of where we think we talks about Satan thinking he was winning. So we've kind of adopted that part of ransom theory without realizing it. Um, I just don't think it's necessary for us to do so. And I don't think there's biblical warrant to do so. And when you are in a battle or in war, we call that type of deception generally strategy, right? right? Yeah. I mean, even even at like the most simple example, like what is camouflage right. except a type of deception right. so that you are trying to 
blend into your environment. So I agree with you. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think one of the things that's interesting, and there is some irony here, and you keep mentioning Greg Boyd, who's a good example of this. You know, he's an outspoken pacifist. One of the other, I think, weaknesses of this particular theory is that it tends to imply that God saves simply because he's strong. Right. So like, in other words, in the end, might is right. Yeah. And that doesn't exactly comport with how we understand biblical atonement anyway, because we need to be really particular and nuanced with the language again here. I don't like the word ransom. I prefer the word liberated because that almost sounds like more of what we're referencing here, because the way in which Christ defeated Satan and the demonic powers was by offering himself as a substitution, a sacrifice for sinners. And the grip that Satan exerted on the souls of men was their unforgiven sin and guilt. So by making propitiation for sins and satisfying the wrath of God against sinners, Christ broke the legal claim of Satan and liberated us from his power. Right. So I, I love this idea of thinking about, you know, we were all POWs at one point. I mean, even Paul uses that language. And so that kind of, I think, shapes some of, I think, the the more fundamental and honoring aspects of the ransom theory that, again, we can draw from and and walk around with our heads held high and our chests out in the sense that Christ has redeemed me in this physical sense where there was a cage match with the devil. Right. And... You know, he kicked him in the face and and beat this battle for us. And we may walk proudly knowing that we have been liberated from these chains and the debt of sin and the slavery that once marked all of our lives, that shaped who we were, that we had these elemental passions and that the, you know, like the, the, the errant part of ourselves where the sinful part of man rested in the center of our being, that has now been broken in Christ. So go and sin no more. Go and live in grace. Like all those things are true and of such a substantial reality that it should actually impact how we think, how we breathe, how we move through this world. And that's like a great encouragement to me because there's so many things that I think are beautiful concepts. And when I make them just concepts in my mind, sometimes they disassociate from how I actually live. But here's power by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit to actually be a different person, to actually yeah. know that if you have a besetting, besetting sin, if you are under a mound of guilt and shame, that you may in fact be released by that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Yeah. That there was a real battle out there, that we needed a real general, and that Christ led the way for us to be victorious through his death. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great way to sort of sort of cap things out, is that the real strength of the ransom theory or the Christus Victor theory is that it emphasizes the reality of our freedom from sin. Um, now, you know, the ransom theory emphasizes that it's freedom from the devil, and, and there's a truth to that. But the real strength of it is that our freedom from the power of sin was won for us in a victory by Christ on the cross. So, you know, people talk about how like, well, I I couldn't help but sin. The reality is that that's just not the case anymore. Like sin is still present in our life, but it doesn't really hold power over our lives the way it did before uh, before our, our, our conversion and before our justification is that the union with Christ, union with the one who bore up under sin and ultimately defeated it and released the captives from the power of the, of, of the devil, that power that he used, the power that he exercised because of his union with the Holy spirit, that power is available to us in nearly the same way that it was available to Christ. So, so it's important for us to see that we have a genuine real victory over sin and that part of growing in holiness, part of growing in sanctification is understanding and, and, embracing that 
that reality and, and tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, I'm not going all crazy charismatic where I'm going to talk about like, well, it's like plugging into the wall. But like in reality, there <laughs> is there is this power that's available to us to overcome yes. sin. And nine out of 10 times, we probably just don't understand and avail ourselves of that. But ransom theory emphasizes that we no longer live in that kingdom. We no longer live in that darkness and in that evil in which, which we once walked. But now we live in the glorious kingdom of the beloved son of God and his spirit indwells us. So now we have the power as Christ did to overcome sin and the devil and ultimately death by the power of the Holy spirit. Boom. Boom. I love that. So here's the plan. So we're going to keep talking about these different theories of atonement over our next several episodes. So hopefully we'll have this really wonderful, deep and broad scope discussion of a series of the different theories. So this is just the first of a many conversations we'll have, but um, I know I always say this, but dare I say that this seems like it was the definitive (laughs) podcast on the ransom theory or Christus Victor theory of atonement. I think think this was it. I think in this case, it probably isn't. There's probably been more (laughs) definitive discussions about the the ransom theory of the atonement, even on podcasts. (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, until we get our next healthcare award, that's all I have, yeah. you know? Yeah, we need to develop. Actually, there is a therapeutic a theory of the atonement. So maybe there we'll, maybe we'll use that in our keynote speech when we accept our award in Las Vegas in a couple months. Yeah, we should really start yeah. thinking about how we want to write that. I would like somebody to Photoshop our heads onto somebody receiving an award at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. <laughs> It's like a really specific. I would really like that because I'd like to allow that image (laughs) to circulate on the internet and somewhere down the road, someone's going to believe we actually won a healthcare award. That's well, what I would like to do is to get a hold of that image and then have you send that back to Brittany and be like, I'm, you must send this to us an error because we've actually already received this. We have, we have already received it. We actually invented the award. We're we're the IHVS (laughs) or whatever it is. After us. Yes. It's the reform brotherhood award for innovation in healthcare. Uh, I love it. Man, we've got a lot of play out of that email. Uh, we're going to get a lot more play out of it. I'm going to write back to her, actually. I'm going to see if I can get more. I'm going to do the James V thing, and I'm going to write back to her and see if I can get more information from her. Oh, uh, that's great. Well, until you do that, Tony, <laughs> and until next time, <laughs> honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.